0: All right. Sorry about the slightly late start, but uh, we uh, we're good now. Uh, I was ending my, I'm teaching this class uh, on Capital Volume 1. We started, um, we did the first chunk of it. Uh, yeah, we did the first chunk of it uh, back in uh, April and May uh, through, uh, Michael Albert's thing, the school for social and cultural change. Um, obviously we did not finish all of capital in eight weeks. So, uh, we, uh, because, uh, SSCC isn't going to be back in session until the fall and we didn't want to wait all the way until then to lose momentum. So we're just kind of continuing it on my Patreon. And, uh, so we're up to about chapter 15 now. And I had to end that early today so I could do this because the way the timing worked out with everything that's going on today, um, this, was the, this was the only way to do both the class and call-in consistent with family commitments. But I uh, figured, you know, I encouraged as we did the capital class today, some of them to come on this so they could call in uh, when I open up the lines for calls. Uh, should be a good discussion because that is a class full of people who I was telling them just now are all kind of, uh, Marx, you know, are all Marx Marx experts because they've read the first, they've read more than 14 chapters of capital, which is the, which is more than the vast majority of convinced Marxists have, uh, have read of capital. Uh, most people who, you know, start capital reading groups, give up some, sometime in chapter three, uh, out of the, the sort of hardy survivors who, who make it past chapter three. Um, there are, um, you know, lots of people get up to, you know, chapter 10 in the working day. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, so and so they, again, even out of people who really put in some effort to reading marks, you know, they, uh, they've they read way more Marx, uh than most of those people. And they have read unfathomably more marks than uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson has read, which is this subject that I'm going to be talking about today. So I'm going to talk through this article that just came out in Jacobin, uh about dr peterson and then i will open up the lines to calls and you know got to wrap up you know there is actually a pretty hard out today got to wrap up about three uh can't stay much after that because of a uh of a family commitment okay um so before i really start talking about the article itself i do want to address a kind of meta thing that you know that i think people sometimes you know like bring up with this which is like Guy, you know, what, why spend why spend all this time on this guy? right because like since this new debate between Peterson and Kyle Kulinski uh came out, actually the full video hasn't even been released yet. I think uh it's uh uh although the full discussion has been released in podcast form. Um that, you know, I mean I've I've done a couple of the Thursdays for the Thursday night to break 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 breakdown to talking through parts of it with Matt McManus. I talked about another chunk of it with, uh, you know, I talked about a few clips from it with uh, Adam Proctor from Dead Pundit Society uh, when he came on the show and now wrote this article in Jacobin. He said, so, look, I mean, this seems like, you might say this seems like way too much attention for uh, for Jordan Peterson. Is it really worth it, right? I mean, is anything he says sort of interesting enough to uh, to be worth it? And I think that, you know, I think the sort of premise of the question is a little bit wrong, right? Because the reason to devote attention to guys like Jordan Peterson is not because I think that what they have to say is sort of, I mean, I, I think he, he talks about a lot of interesting subjects, but I don't think that, you know, he necessarily has anything to say about them that is super interesting, right? But uh, instead, because he's talking to so many people, right? This is one of the most, this is one of the best-selling authors on the planet, there are like the number of copies that, for example, his book Twelve Rules for Life sold is like through the roof. It's crazy, you know the uh, the the number. Um, you know, there, I I think to this day you'd have a hard time finding a like college bookstore in the English speaking world that uh, that didn't include that book. Add, of course, 12 Rules for Life, sounds like, and to a great extent is, a uh, self-help advice kind of a book. Um, and, you know, and so look, I mean, so and this is, so sometimes you get the opposite criticism, not like, this guy is such a clown, why waste any time on him, right? That's the sort of criticism you get sometimes from leftists, but sometimes, from defense of Jordan Peterson apologists, you'll get the opposite criticism, which is like, look, why are you talking about Jordan Peterson, like being wrong about like Marx and Marxism, right? He's a psychologist. He's a self-help author. Like why expect that he would know about this stuff? It's silly. It has nothing to do with his appeal. And, you know, yes and no. Um, It is certainly true. He is all of those things, right? He is a psychologist. He is a self-help author. Uh, you know, he is increasingly just a straight political pundit now, too, right? I mean, he, uh, uh, you know, his was much better than mine, right? You know, but, <laughs> but both of us in the last couple of years gave up full-time teaching positions to uh, focus on other things. I'm still teaching an adjunct. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Peterson is still doing any regular university teaching, but, you know, he's still, um, you know, he still is a, a clinical psychology practice you know as far as i know and he's certainly um you know he certainly teaches you know classes through his website or whatever but um you know but he also if that was all he was right i mean it's again it's certainly one thing he is and you know and i, and I think that he's you know there are things that are positive that you can say about him there right i've had people tell me that you know that peterson's work helped them get over like you know, really serious addictions, which I, I certainly take seriously. There are people I've loved who've struggled with those addictions and, you know, and, and, if he can help, fantastic. Uh, although one, one person who told me that, uh, said, uh, you know, that they then sort of stuck around for the politics and then, you know, stuff that Matt McManus and I had written helped to wean them off the politics, which made me very happy. And now they're kind of soured on him, which sounds like an ideal outcome from start to finish. Uh, but, uh, But look, if all he was was a psychologist and self-help author, then I would never talk about him, right? Like, you know, a lot of the Jungian sort of quasi-mystical Jungian psychology stuff sounds very bullshitty to me, but the world is full of things that sound kind of bullshitty to me that I never feel the need to weigh in on, right? I would never have opened my mouth about Jordan Peterson if not for the fact that he's always mixed that in with reactionary politics. Um, You know, he's, he's done that consistently throughout his entire career. I mean, before, before 12 rules for life was even out right before that book was even published, he was, uh, uh, he was already sort of becoming famous for his opposition to something called bill C 16 in Canada, which for anybody who doesn't remember what that was or never knew, uh, it was a bill that would amend Canada's pre-existing Human Rights Act to um, uh, to include gender identity, right? So you couldn't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. Now, the primary purpose of that bill was to defend, you know, protect trans people against discrimination and housing and employment and etc. Um, but Peterson got it into his head that the result of it was that he was going to be fined or go to prison if he doesn't pay his fine for, uh, not using correct pronouns. Right. You know, and, and, you know, which, you know, like a, some, you know, some student wanted to be referred to as Caesar, right. You know, then and he didn't do it right. Cause he wouldn't do it. Cause God damn it. You cannot make him, uh, then uh, then that would, uh, that he would end up in, you know, Canadian pronoun jail. And, you know, this was always a pretty dubious concern. Uh, The Canadian Bar Association actually came out with a, you know, I mean, a letter, you know, like the the head of it, but on their letterhead and speaking for them, uh, saying, no, guys, this is wrong, right? This is just a basic misinterpretation of how the law would be used. There's no way that this could force anybody to use pronouns. Um, And I do kind of tend to trust the Canadian Bar Association more than I trust um, Jordan Peterson to interpret Canadian law, and I'd certainly note that, you know, as far as I know, right, there have been zero pronoun arrests since it came out. But, you know, look, if he if he was right about that, um, you know, I would still support the law, but I would support amending it to make it clear that it could be used in that way. I'm a big free speech guy. I certainly don't think anybody should be. You know, I think you're a huge asshole if you don't use somebody's preferred pronouns. Uh, I I think just basic common sense sort of politeness you should call people what they want to be called. I mean, I think that's actually a pretty normy value. But uh, but I certainly don't want anybody to be legally forced to use pronouns. Uh, and I think that, you know, it was always a, a little dubious um, that, you know, like, was this really, you know, was this really the concern? If so, it seems like a kind of paranoid, misguided concern that might tell you something in and of itself. And I always found it super suspect that, you know, he was opposed to, to the bill as a whole, right? You know, which, again, would do things like protect trans people from discrimination, housing, and employment, rather than just saying, okay, I can see that this is necessary, but let's have an amendment to to make sure that it's not used in any way that violates my free speech concerns. Um, But, you know, that was, like, where he was at already in, like, 2017. He was saying stuff like that, and he was becoming famous as the, you know, as, as the, like, you know, anti-pronoun you know pronoun bill because that's what he taught people on both sides of the border to think that this bill was anti-pronoun bill, uh, you know, Canadian professor before 12 Rules for Life came out in 2018. He'd already published a uh, much more insane (laughs) and unreadable book called Maps of Meaning. Um, But, you know, his his big famous book came out in 2018 after he's already becoming famous for this. And uh, crucially in that um you know in that book of self-help device advice uh 12 rules for life there are surprisingly extensive references to and like extended rants about the evils of marx and marxism right and how marx was wrong about everything and his ideas had a horrible effect historically and this is a great example of how ideas matter the the phrase postmodern neo-marxism comes up a bunch of times so it's like even in his book of self help advice, he can't help you know he can't help himself, right? He can't help himself in his, his self help from uh, from ranting about the evils of Marx and Marxism, and of course that's becoming an even bigger part of his life now. That, you know he he gave up his full time position at UT, and um, he's uh, and he's now working for Ben Shapiro's uh, media outlet, the uh, the Daily Wire. Right? So he's becoming a, even more of a political pundit than he was before. So, yeah, I mean, if if all Peterson had done is write about Jungian archetypes and how you need to keep your back straight and you know things of this nature, then I probably never would have said a word about him. Right, But it's always, the, the self-help advice has always been mixed with reactionary politics, um, which have gotten even more reactionary over time. One of the things I noted in the article is that, like, in 2017, even if it was a pretty dubious concern, and even though I don't think it quite justified his position, again, why not just try to advocate an amendment to C-16 to address the free speech concern, at least there was a pretense that it was that, like, oh, he didn't have a problem with trans people, this is just a free speech thing, whereas the conversation with Kyle Kalinske this year, right, this summer, uh, didn't come out very long ago, he he waffled about whether even adults should be allowed to medically transition. Says so it's like about whether like transition surgery should be should be allowed even for you know adults you know i mean certainly he thinks not for minors but even for adults you know he was on the fence so this is like way more reactionary you know than uh anything that he was at least putting front and center in 2018-19 you know when he was debating Slavoj um in uh he also has a whole rant to there in the, you know, there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of the the Kalinsky debate that's devoted to arguing about whether there could be positive rights or only sort of libertarian negative rights. Uh, he goes, um, he comes very close to just opposing the Canadian healthcare system and favoring the American one. He, you know, he's ultimately still Canadian and, you know, even Canadian conservatives aren't outright opposed to uh, Canada's universal medical system, so he doesn't quite take that position. But you know, he says, "Well, actually, there are lots. There's a lot that's wrong with the Canadian healthcare system. There's a lot that's good about the American one. Even if there are, you know, even if there are things that are bad about the the American and good about the Canadian, and maybe it'd be better to have some kind of hybrid. And maybe there should be market reforms the Canadian one. So you know, he's he's definitely become much more of a right wing partisan, right? Like in 2018, 19." You know, he was definitely a big defender of um, right-wing social values, but he did seem somewhat at a distance from um, day-to-day partisan politics. Uh, and that distance has just disappeared now, right? I mean, in 2022, I mean, he he seems to be just very much about, you know, the sort of push and pull of day-to-day, you know, partisan politics. Um I mean, he's like he he was all in on the trucker protest and, you know, Justin Trudeau is dictator and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And also American politics. Uh, He also says very pro-Trump things in uh, the conversation with Kyle Kalinske said that, you know, he in the whatever little straw poll was held at this conservative club in Canada, uh, he um, he voted for Trump. Over uh, over Hillary Clinton, right? You know, he supported Trump over Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election uh, on the grounds that uh, Hillary Clinton had betrayed the working class. And then Kyle very reasonably said, "Well, hold on, right? <laughs> Isn't Trump worse for the working class than uh, even Hillary? Right? As bad as Hillary was?" And and Peterson said, "No, right?" Peterson said, "Trump hasn't betrayed the working class the way that Hillary betrayed the working class." Um, and he says a bunch of stuff about the housing crisis. It's very like right-wing talking point kind of stuff. So, you know, he's definitely moved to, at least in his emphasis, maybe he's always held all of these views, but at least his emphasis has definitely moved to the right, even compared to where it was in 2019. But in particular, like I was saying, I mean, if, you know, back to that point that if all he were doing were psychology and self-help, you know, I don't know that I ever would have written a word about him. Right? Uh the reason that I've always thought he was worth engaging with is that he's one of the people, you know, he's he's one of the single people in the world who most likes to talk about Marx and Marxism, who gets the most of a hearing for it, right? Like he's the, you know, for better or for worse. I mean I actually had an article in 2019 after the uh debate uh the the J Peterson debate uh, called Karl Marx deserves better critics, uh, which was out in Quillette. I put it in Quillette instead of a left-wing magazine because I wanted Peterson to read it. <laughs> that was my kind of petty motivation because I know he read Quillette, and I, I wanted to irritate him. But uh, but in the yeah in 2019, uh, you know, wrote this you know Karl Marx deserves better critics article, making the obvious point that you know it's pathetic that this is the most prominent critic of Marxism in the world today, but it is also a fact that this is the most prominent criticism of critic of Marx in the world today. Certainly the top five, right. That like he is somebody who has a giant megaphone, right. Who has sold a gazillion books, right. Um, Who's, you know, who, even if people on the left sometimes get sick of talking about him, think he's yesterday's news. He is continuing to reach, exponentially more people <laughs> than, uh, that I do, or than like any leftist content creator you like does. Uh, so I, I think for better or for worse, he does have to be dealt with and particularly those of us who are interested in Marx's ideas, I think have to, have to talk about him, you know, or should talk about him. Cause if we want to sort of engage publicly about marx's ideas well i mean this is one of the most prominent critics of those ideas you know unfortunately right we live in a very stupid world if if we lived in a more reasonable one he would not be right but he is and um so this brings us finally to the content of the the article and i'll i guess i'll just kind of spend a couple minutes on this and then i'll open up the lines for uh at the lines, whatever. I'll, I'll start taking calls. Uh, you know, this is not a radio station. There are no lines. There's just a queue. But, you know, if people get in the queue in the next few minutes, I'll start uh, I'll start taking calls. Okay. Um, so in that 2019 article, right, Karl Marx deserves better critics, uh, what I was really calling attention to there was this is, was not anything that happened when Slavoj started talking right, like 15 minutes or whatever into the debate, but about something that happened, you know, which was, you know, I mean, I think he did a great job. I talk about this in uh, Canceling Comedians. Um, and, yeah, there are many wonderful things that happened yeah, later in the debate, uh, most memorably, uh, Slavoj asking him to, uh, to, to list off the postmodern neo-Marxists and, and Dodger-Peterson uh, completely drawing a blank and not being able to come up with a single name right uh but um but the most amazing part of the debate i thought was happening like the first minute right which is in peterson's opening statement he made this just draw jaw-dropping admission that this is a guy who constantly runs off his mouth about marx and marxism he never shuts up about the subject and you know he even in 12 rules for life right the self-help book he He makes a big point of blaming Marx and Marxism for everything from the allegedly corrupting influence of postmodernism on Western society through the horrors perpetrated by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, right? Like this is like to his mind, right? Marxism is, is this massively important ideological enemy of everything he cares about. And yet he hasn't really ever bothered reading Marx because in that opening statement, in uh the debate in toronto he admitted that he had just now right he said he was he thought he would maybe read some of slavoj's books because he was going to be debating him but he there were so many of them and they were so long he wasn't going to do that which is already amazing right as far as i could tell i don't know what preparation he did but he doesn't even seem to have watched much of slavoj and youtube um interesting choice But he said he figured what he would do, right, because he's going to debate a Marxist, is that he would um, he would reread the Communist Manifesto because he says that's where all the trouble started. Uh, And he uh, and he would. uh, And so this opening statement was the sort of very bad book report on the Communist Manifesto, basically. Uh, that show that he didn't understand a lot of it. And, you know, I don't know how closely he read it, you know, but he at least skimmed the communist manifesto to prepare this little book report. And in, uh, in there he, um, uh, you know, so like every, like a bunch of Marxist statements at random, he referred to as axioms, which is just weird and nonsensical, right. And, uh, an axiom is like a basic premise. That's not you know justified by anything further, or whatever, like, uh, it's basically Jordan Peterson likes the word axiom, so he kept referring to a bunch of statements that Marx makes as axioms for no reason. Uh, you know, like you know, it's an axiom that all hitherto existing history is the history of class struggle, rather than just an observation about history. Um, but whatever. Um, but the really jaw dropping part was that he was that he admitted that this is the first time he'd read even the Communist Manifesto since he was eighteen years old. Now, Peterson was already, I believe, 57 at the time of the, uh, the Zizek debate in Toronto. So uh, he's admitting that this guy who never shuts up about Marxism, who constantly talks about Marx, you cannot watch Peterson for a length of time without him taking shots at Marx and Marxism. You know, again, unfortunately, one of the most prominent criticisms of Marx, uh, critics of Marxism in the world today, right, that this dude hasn't even read the Communist Manifesto for 40 years, right? Certainly he didn't read it at any time during those years that he started to become a crusader against Marxism. Uh, and if he hadn't even read the Communist Manifesto since he was 18, up until his late 50s when he was getting ready to you know, prep for the debate with Zizek, I think it's safe to say that he wasn't pouring through the discussion of the falling rate of profit in Capital Volume 3 either, right? I, I think it's safe to say he has not read a single chapter of of you know marx's masterpiece capital um you know i think there are excellent reasons to think he hasn't even read other pamphlets like the critique of the gotha program um more on that in a minute Uh, but uh but in any case um Like, that's bad enough. I mean, that's what I was giving him shit about in that Quillette article in 2019. You know, Karl Marx deserves better critics. But what really struck me when I was watching the debate with Kyle Kalinske is that that in the last three years, he seems to have even forgotten what Marx says in the Communist Manifesto. Why do I say that? Well, early on in the Kalinske conversation, Kyle asked him, Um, just out of curiosity I think this is the exact wording it's from memory but I think this is the exact wording just out of curiosity are there any of Marx's ideas or any of his critiques of capitalism that you think have any merit and Peterson's response was well the idea that capitalism produces inequality and that inequality is concerning is not wrong Uh, If you listen carefully to his concerns, you know, he just, you know, um, it's very clear, by the way, that Peterson, of course, doesn't think that inequality is bad in itself. In fact, he doesn't even really think that that like lack of equal opportunity is bad in itself, Uh, although he sometimes talks that way. Right. Equality of opportunity is good. Equality of outcome is bad because he says it's okay if different people are starting the race at different starting points. Right, as long as there's no obstacle to them running the race, it's a very narrow libertarian conception of even equality of opportunity, and a, a pretty vacuous one, honestly. But um, but he says, uh, okay, so he says Marx is not wrong; capitalism produces inequality, and that inequality could be concerted for various pragmatic reasons. He talks about, you know, of course, given Peterson's fixation, he talks about how young men who don't think they can get ahead economically are more likely, you know, the, or who don't think that they can achieve a higher status, you know, through economic competition are more likely to turn to violence, you know, and that's one of the reasons that inequality is Uh, concerted. uh But that's not original to Marx that, you know, capitalism produces inequality. After all, it says in the gospels that the poor will always be with us, which let's just hard pause on that. That the only way that thought makes sense is if Peterson thinks that capitalism already existed at the time of the Gospels. So, but whatever, give him a pass on that. Maybe he's just sort of tried to express a more sensible thought than that in a very clumsy way. But in any case, uh, says you know, even the gospel says the poor will always be with us, and you know there are different solutions that societies have had to uh, to inequality. He talks about jubilees in the Old Testament. I really wish Kalinske had asked him if he would be in favor of uh, jubilee now, right? Could we have regular debt forgiveness now? Uh, you know that'd be pretty amazing, right? If 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 Peterson were, for example, down for canceling all student loans and uh, medical debt uh you know uh, housing you know housing debt uh, every uh, every seven years, uh, but in any case, um, forget that right uh, he says, look so so yes, capitalism produces inequality, that's true inequality can be concerning that's true, but but none of this is original Marx, and it's absolutely absurd to to suggest as he clearly thinks Marx does right He's presenting this as a criticism of Marx. That capitalism is unique in producing inequality because all the systems we had before capitalism have also produced inequality. Silly Marx, how does he not realize this? Uh all the systems before capitalism also produced inequality, but what's unique about capitalism is the level of prosperity that it produces. So there Marx. And all right, this will be the last point before we uh start taking calls. So if if you if you want to get in on this, if you have a thought. You know, it doesn't have to be a question. If you want to just kind of riff on some of it or ask me something related or, you know, go in a different direction, go right ahead and do that. Um, But the core point I wanted to make, which is roughly the same point that I had Adam Proctor on to make a couple episodes of the main show on YouTube ago, is that's goofy as shit. Like Peterson literally doesn't even remember what he read. In 2019, in the Communist Manifesto, because yeah, no kidding. Uh, previous societies produced inequality. Now, by the way, equality is not even the main normative concept that motivates Marx. If uh, if if Peterson had, uh, you know, I mean, you could read the com, you could probably read both this and the Communist Manifesto in a single afternoon without it even taking up your whole afternoon. But if uh, if uh, If Peterson had read uh, another very short Marx pamphlet, The Critique of the Gotha Program, uh, he would know that Marx says that questions about distribution are secondary anyway. You know, he basically says, look, questions about how goods are distributed, right? Like sort of consumer goods, right? You know, this sort of distribution of how much everybody actually gets in a take-home way. uh, These are downstream, right? These questions about the distribution of the means of consumption are downstream for more basic questions about the distribution of the means of production. That, in other words, it's which class is in charge of the means of production. That's the sort of core question that's going to lead to, you know, the, yeah, I mean, given the sort of uh, alienation of capital from labor, right, given, in other words, that most people, you know, under capitalism most people have to work at enterprises where they don't own the place. Uh, You have these separate capitalists uh, whose incentive is to, you know, uh, share as little as they think they can get away with, with the workers that, you know, the sort of absolutely brutal level of inequality that you have under capitalism is a natural result of that kind of more basic class inequality and access to the means of production. Um, So, you know, the, you know, the big, and the kind of equality Marx cares most about, in other words, as I've suggested, article I wrote for Jacobin back in like February is the sort of, or maybe it was the end of last year, I don't remember. Um, it, you know, I have an article about those called The Kind of Equality that Socialists Care Most About is Equality of Power, right? You know, that's certainly true of Marx, right? You know, that he cared the, because you know, ultimately he's concerned with freedom, right? You know, and particularly freedom from domination, right? Ultimately Marx is concerned with what's going to enable, you know, more human flourishing, or it's going to inhibit it. Okay, but look, Marx is very aware that uh, capitalism is not unique in generating inequality. In fact, if Peterson remembered his reading in 2019 when he was prepping for the Zizek debate, he might remember That the first sentence of the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto, the first sentence of the introduction is the thing about the specter haunting Europe, but the first sentence of the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto, bourgeois and proletarians, right, that first chapter, is... The history of all hitherto hitherto existing history is the history of class struggle. And then he starts going through different examples. You know, nobles and serfs, slaves and freemen, patricians and plebeians, right? These are all examples from pre-capitalist class societies. So Marx is very, very aware that capitalism is not unique in generating inequality and distribution of resources. In fact, he's very, very aware that capitalism is not unique in generating class inequality. Uh... Nor, and this is the key point and, and you know this I promise is the very last point before I take any calls that you know people have is um that uh Marx is very, very aware that capitalism is unique not in producing class inequality but in developing the forces of production, right, the productive capacity of the society to the point. That you could have a qualitatively more democratic and egalitarian society where everyone's needs are met and you're not just trying to do a more equal distribution of crumbs. In other words, socialism, right? For Marx, what's exciting, the thing that's ultimately the most exciting about capitalism is that it does develop the productive capacity of society so much that we could have a prosperous egalitarian society. Right, that you know, which because ultimately he's interested in human flourishing and all of this, that um, that that's the whole point. That capitalism uh, is unique not in generating inequality, but in the level of prosperity that it allows for by expanding the productive process so more. That's the whole fucking point that Marx thinks that um, that you know this is exciting because finally, right, we have this level of development of the productive forces. That could allow us to go from capitalism to socialism, so fat, I remember back when Peterson was aware that Marx uh, talked about uh, class inequality before capitalism because he said Marx is too simplistic in this axiom that you know that uh, that they all hitherto exist in history as the history of class struggle uh, when he when he knew that, when he was aware that uh, that uh, Peterson. Uh, You know, when Peterson was aware that Marx thought that, right, you know, he expressed confusion in that Zizek-Peterson opening statement about why it is that Marx, you know, it's confusingly, Marx seems to be aware that capitalism generates much more, you know, productive you know, power than uh, the previous systems. Like, yes, that's the whole point. Um, and you can... Agree or disagree with Marx's critique of political economy, right? It's totally fine if Peterson wants to criticize it. It's not, you know, Marx is not infallible. You can find things to criticize. Um, but given his interest in criticizing it, I really wish that he would find out what it was, right? That he would do the basic reading that would enable him to know what Marx's point was so he could decide whether he agreed with it. All right. That is the point. Uh, if there are any, um, if there are any calls, we'll go ahead and take those. Um, I should try to take off at the episode for real by like maybe three ten. 10. Uh, so let's see if we can get through both of those before then. So we have Amanda. What's on your mind? Hello. I'm curious
1: and you don't have to necessarily no, go for me a it. long answer, but I, I know I, I, only more recently in my life have encountered Jacobin. Can yeah. you just give me like kind of a little, little sh- sh- spiel about, about Jacobin? Cause I don't really know much about it. Can sure. Just give me like the brief. I know it's a place you've been published. I also know that it's a place where I find good ideas sometimes, but I don't know much more than that.
0: Sure. So Jacobin, uh, was started a little over 10 years ago i feel like they were doing the 10-year anniversary stuff and like a year ago or so um by my good friend baskar Sankara, uh who's the founding editor and although he's uh a little hands-off now because he's doing stuff at the nation um And yeah, I've been a, I've been a regular columnist there since, uh, 2019, but I was certainly reading it for years and years before that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, I think that Jacobin, you know, is, is the most sort of high profile socialist magazine in the U.S. I think, especially since like maybe the, you know, the Bernie campaigns are probably when it sort of came to a little bit more prominence, but, um, But I mean, I think it's sort of the, if you kind of think about the sort of, you know, whatever you want to call it, new, new left, you know, the, the new sort of social democratic and socialist left that's, that's kind of arisen in the last several years in the U S it's like maybe the main kind of magazine that's associated with that. And I guess I'll just say, um, you know, like I said, I was reading it, you know, you know, there are places that I write for that I, wasn't necessarily a big reader of uh, before. I hear you, I I
1: hear
0: you. You know, know, people could, people could, uh, you know, probably, probably guess. Uh, But, uh, but Jacobin's not like that, right? But Jacobin, I was regularly reading, you know, long before I started writing there. I still, I still regularly read other people at Jacobin. Um, And, uh, and I've always found it really useful, I think for a couple of reasons. One uh, is... You know, I mean, they just they just publish a lot of you know accessible stuff about subjects I find interested. I think there's a sort of political line that's associated with. I mean, there's a there's a range of views of people who publish a Jacobin. It's not like everybody agrees on anything by any means, but I think there's a sort of there's a sort of basic line that uh, that that appeals to me. That like is is reflected in there. There's like a kind of emphasis on bread and butter economic issues that I think is really useful. Uh, there's a sort of non sectarianism. There's not a lot of time spent on sort of intra left stuff there. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's not a lot of time spent on sort of culture worry kind of stuff in there. And, uh, and I think there's a, and I think that there's, I think it's really usefully helped to promote a uh, kind of um, a sort of orientation of sort of how to be a leftist, how to be a socialist. I find really useful. Which is that on the one hand, it sort of keeps alive these like big ideas about, you know, socialism and, you know, and all of that. Right. You know, that, that we can, you know, we should be dreaming bigger. Right. You know, that we could have like much more fundamental kinds of social change than anything that's on the table in sort of day to day partisan politics. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, but on the other hand, in a way that's not sort of dismissive of like reforms that could like really help people's lives right now. Right. And so it's, it's like, maybe that sounds a little bit banal, just kind of say it that way, but I mean, no,
1: no, I think it doesn't sound banal at all. And I think that um, I really appreciate your analysis of it as a writer, because you've been writing in these spaces and you're familiar with the different sources, right? I'm glad that I asked about one that you actually are in alignment with, (laughs) which I kind of thought at the, you know, just having listened to you before and having read you, that it seemed like, <clears throat> but I'm glad to hear that I wasn't reading some kind of undercover libertarian. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Cause sometimes I've, I've ended up in sometimes a space like that, like a couple sure. of years ago, you know, it can be hard until you kind of wade in and then you discover they're talking about single people and not the community. So, well, but I appreciate that very much that little brief, um, plug for for Jacobin because I, now I don't feel uncomfortable trying to refer it, other people to it and stuff. So thank you very much.
0: All right, thank you so much, Medda. uh Schnarf.
2: Hey, how's it going? Um, I had a I have a quick question for you, and I, I've I've listened to the Zizek uh, Peterson debate like I, I'd say at least a dozen times. Yeah. Right, um, so. My question is about Jordan Peterson and his relationship to Nietzsche. Yeah, because I don't see Jordan Peterson as a Nietzschean person. Like he doesn't he doesn't have the elements I think that that would that would uh, that would put him in the same bucket philosophically or or anything. I think what he does is that he attempts to take a couple of popular quotes and then attach himself to it. So I'm really interested. Like, what do you think about Jordan Peterson's? Th- philosophical uh, connection to to Nietzsche or is it just like a complete farce because I don't see him and Nietzsche being similar in any sort of way
0: yeah so I actually I mean what you're talking about is something that really confused me for a long time right because because he because why does Jordan Peterson love to talk about Nietzsche so much why does he seem to do so in such a positive way right I mean every time he you know, every time he quotes Nietzsche, you know, he's he's quoting him to, like, agree with him. Right. Or like say, like, it's it always it always seems to sort of go without say that's like, oh, I'm quoting this because it's so profoundly insightful. And it's really weird. Right. On the face of it, because, you know, Jordan Peterson is somebody who, like, bemoans the dechristianization of uh, of the West. And, you know, right. That, that's like the least Nietzschean thing ever. Right. I mean, what's what's going on there? Uh, and uh, and I I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I think you're basically right, but I do think um that there's a way of thinking about this that I actually got from uh Stefan Bertrand Lee. Uh I was talking to him on the Sublation YouTube channel like a week or two ago, I don't remember exactly. And and I think he he said something that helped make this click for me finally, right? You know, after sort of years of, of uh of, of Peterson watching and and finding this bizarre, right? And it's like, what what are you getting out of Nietzsche such that you think he agrees with you, right? Like, how's this how's this possible? Uh, and I think that the, um, and I think that what what Stefan said is is basically just, uh, yeah. I mean, he, you know, basically Peterson thinks that when uh, Nietzsche is talking about the death of God, you know, that that's a bad thing, right? Like that that's the uh, that like, you know, if you sort of read Nietzsche in this bizarre way as like bemoaning, you know, the, uh, the death of God, then suddenly it all makes sense. Right. That like, that, that it is, you know, cause like, that's how he's, you know, he's talking about it as if he's giving this like grim warning, you know, of, uh, of things, uh, of things coming down the line, rather than that, like, this is that, that, you know, that the Christianity is bad, right. It's slave morality, that there's this sort of, uh, higher values that you'll achieve, you know, like after, you know, after it's gone or that you can achieve unless you, you know, regress into this bad stuff that, you know, I mean, would get into the like really politically reactionary parts of Nietzsche's thought that like that he thought was bad because he thought it was reintroducing it in this new and more insidious form, you know, the old Christian values, you know, of, uh, um, you know, self, uh, self-sacrifice and, you know, and, and all of that stuff. So, uh, I think that's the best I could do on, uh, on that. But, uh, I do want to just, uh, thank you so much for the call, but I do want to just get through as many of these as I can before I, before I take off. So, uh, Steven, what's on your mind?
1: Um, well, he's a charlatan, isn't he? And a sophist. And I just, I just wonder, um, are we going to see him in the history of philosophy in a hundred years? And, um, what will be his legacy?
0: God, or will I hope he not.
1: die out? Do you, he's yeah. just going to die a death, isn't he? At some
0: yeah, form? my my hope would be that uh, that nobody's talking about Jordan Peterson a hundred years. I I find that thought really depressing. Uh, that they would it's be frightening, but, isn't it? Yeah, I think he probably won't be right. I think that the mm. I I optimistically at least. I think that the Peterson legacy is going to be at best like the sort of legacy of like, uh, you know, during who is this guy in uh, the 19th century, yeah. you know, like philosophical and socialist uh, circles he, 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 who we only he, know, who we only he, know his name because Eagles yeah, yeah. wrote a book criticizing him. Right. Mm. You know that like, right, or, yeah. or like, or like all the philosophers who like we only have fragments of because they're an Aristotle or whatever. So yeah. my hope would be that, um, that the only tie, the only clue anybody has in a hundred years that Jordan Peterson existed is that, uh, is that there are like references to him in, mm-hmm. uh, in things that are written by other people. Right. Because like, yeah. cause I hope it would be like, you know, what David Hume says about, um, about art, right. You know, that the, uh, that the way mm-hmm. we could tell what's really great art in literature, is that you know is that something that's not could be very popular at a particular time and place, but it mm. doesn't translate over the course of history right that like mm. in later times nobody you know gets anything out of it, so it sort of fades mm. away, doesn't pass the test of time, you know, so I hope it would be like that right I hope it would be like some you know book that you find in like a garage sale right you know that yeah. like you' you're you'd see like old books. And yeah. it's like, it's like, you see, it's from like, it's from like the 1970s or something. And there's a thing at the top of the paperback where it says worldwide bestseller. And you're like, how is this a worldwide bestseller? Right. I've never heard of it. Yes. You know? like, like, I I hope that it's like that, yes. but, uh, but we will, uh, I guess, uh, I guess we'll, we'll have to see. Or maybe. Our, his, our...
1: his legacy might be the old beef diet. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I, I I would hope for the sake of the health of future generations that that one dies out, too. But uh, in any case, um, um, uh, let me uh, let me just go. Uh, I'm kind of rushing through these at this point, but I do want to I do want to get in as many people's points as possible. Thank you so much, Stephen, for uh, the call. Uh, that is uh, uh, the Stephen as a veteran of multiple classes and uh, again has read exponentially more marks than uh, than Jordan Peterson. Uh, Ryan, what's on your mind?
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, you may not have uh, time to answer this question, but I was reading the German ideology and Marx referenced the abolition of labor and I wasn't Mm -hmm. quite sure what to make that phrase exactly. So I don't know if you uh, have an understanding of what Marx was getting at with that phrase or if you're even familiar with that particular phrase
0: yeah uh so I think that um and i'll just I'll just take uh Jacob because Jacob will be the last call uh while I'm answering Ryan's call to the best of my ability to answer it uh so I certainly don't remember the the particular passage for the German ideology off the top of my head, but I think that the i think there are two things it could mean uh in diff- in slightly different contexts uh i think that um or maybe three. But you know, I, but I think that like at least two right would be the abolition of labor, like the abolition of wage labor, right? Um, which you know would just be socialism, right? You know that we uh, that uh, if the sort of system of renting yourself out to uh, to a capitalist uh, is uh, is overcome because you know people are no longer forced to uh, to work for others, uh, there are related meetings that would go way further than that. Uh, so uh, I guess. Possibility two, or maybe one and a half, because uh, it's so closely related to uh, to one. Certainly, in Marx's way of thinking, is you know that this could be about like the sort of abolition of of the production of value, right? So Marx thinks under capitalism um, there's the sort of um, average socially necessary labor time is um, in the abstract is sort of what's being accumulated, what's sort of being built up, what's what's uh, as you know the sort of accumulation of profits and everything that's like the underlying thing that it is and that you know labor in that sense right that kind of abstract labor time that everything's oriented around under capitalism is abolished under socialism what it would mean for that to be abolished is a giant can of worms i'm not gonna um you know i think it's a little unclear but i'm certainly not going to pretend to be able to shed a lot of insight into that you know right now uh, that's hugely controversial even among those marxists who really make a big deal of that point Uh, I'm not one of them, right? I I think that, you know, the whole concept of value as it exists in Marx, I actually think a lot of the most important arguments he makes could be made without reference to it, and it it could get a little unhelpfully metaphysical sometimes, but uh, that's a bigger discussion. Uh, Third thing that he could mean by it, you know, is, which, again, is very closely related to the first two, uh, is the idea of labor not as just sort of a Uh, fulfillment of like human creative drives, right? You know, that we're, of course, under any society, we're engaged in some sort of exchange with nature to derive use values to meet our needs, but like labor and that sense of of, like this separate activity that we have to do to make a living that feels alienated from us and all of that stuff, that going away, right? In a way that it might not even... And Marx admits this in volume three of Capital in a way that it might not even go away, given workers control of production, because after all, even if you're working in a worker controlled factory, you're not going to like really enjoy or drive that much creative fulfillment from working in a factory. Right. He says the realm of true freedom lies in the reduction of working hours and, you know, really, maybe ultimately something like what the kids now call fully automated luxury communism mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that the work is being done by machines and humans can just spend the time how they want. So maybe some of those look like labor, but they're not like things that we have to do for a living. They're things that we choose to do to sort of creatively direct our own energies. So I think those are my, my best guesses, but real quickly, before I do have to go for real, let's, uh, Jacob, what's on your mind? Are you with us, Jacob? All right, I think we lost Jacob, so uh, we're going to have to end it there for today, and I will see people next week. Left is best.